The Integration Station. Well, welcome back to the Integration Station, your go-to paediatric occupational therapy podcast run by the OTFC group. We aim to connect parents, caregivers, therapists, health professionals, teachers and students around the world to support children and young people with special needs. Well, today we're chatting with clinical psychologist Kerry Burke. Kerry is a senior clinical psychologist with over 20 years experience working with children, adolescents and families in hospital, community and private settings. And she's currently working at Psychology South Australia. Kerry has a wide experience in psychological assessment and established the Children's Early Developmental Assessment Service, or CEDIS, which is now part of Psychology SA. Kerry is able to assess and diagnose a range of conditions, including autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, specific learning disorders, and intellectual disability. Kerry is passionate about comprehensively understanding the whole child and works very much from a strength-based framework to help children reach their potential. Hello, Kerry. Thanks so much for joining us today. How are you going? Good. Great. Saturday. <laughs> yep. Busy week, but it's good to be here. Yeah. What does your normal Saturday look like? Um, well, today, yeah, normally gym, maybe in the morning. Uh, today I haven't, um, but my girls have played a lot of sports. So, and today I've got, they're both in a grand final for <gasps> softball. So Whoa. I'm off after this to watch lots of softball. That's awesome. Yeah. First grand finals? Um, my youngest one's been in a grand final before, but the older one hasn't. So they're nervous, very nervous, but excited. How old are your girls? 14 and 13. Oh, they are closer to my mm. children. I didn't think yeah. they were as, oh, okay. So we're at the point of they can look after themselves. Oh, look, yes, but still so dependent, <laughs> you know, like they're driving around. So, and look, I want them to do sport, um, because of the alternatives, you know, the screens are such a draw mm. card for them at this age that we my husband and I keep them pretty involved in sport um but yeah lots of driving around and then they've got lovely social lives so mm. lots of hands out for money and driving them around so um, basically you're an uber service pretty much <laughs> pretty much yep until yep. they learn to drive and then you worry about oh, well, them the, driving yeah. and stay up at night waiting for them to get home yeah without trying to appear that you're waiting for them <laughs> yeah i'm not mm. ready for that no so i should enjoy this stage right <laughs> absolutely it's fun having children it's it's it difficult well it probably brings us to a point of of part of your role must be to talk to families and parents yep. about parenting yeah um i'm going to ask you the, the trickiest question about parental advice and what's your stance on giving parental advice because obviously you have to give some mm. Yeah, I do. Um, and I, I mean, I wait for it to, you know, I wait for the request mm -hmm. for what would you do. Um, and often it's, yeah, it, as a psychologist, it's respecting that who I'm talking to and who I'm supporting may have different values from me. And so trying to find mm -hmm. that out first before I, yeah, I'm not a jump in with advice kind of person. Mm -hmm. I am. I, I, like to think I'm pretty good at listening and trying to sort out what their needs are, where they're coming from, and then try and give that support. Um, and I mean, my main my main thing is we've we've got to be there for our kids. We've got to have that 
open relationship we've got a we want them to come and talk to us and then really trying to support parents where that's gone off track which it yeah. often does in the teenage mm-hmm. years trying to support them to bring that back so that we can have they can they can have that really open understanding and often I get kids coming and telling me things and saying don't you know don't, can you not tell mum and dad mm-hmm. so then trying to really support parents with you know there are things I want to talk to you about so how can we create that openness and non judgment which I know as a parent is hard because you know I'm wise and you should do what I say um but that's not going to cut it um so the listening and I'm really 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 big on it's probably my main thing that I talk to parents a lot about is validation so Mm. rather than go into problem solving which we want to do I get it um we you know I'd really try and support them with just you know understanding the emotion and letting Mm. them know that you can get that you understand that emotion and that that emotion is okay for them to have um and then once we can really sort of connect over the emotion and you know preferably I want to start that really early so sometimes in teenage years if they haven't had that that's tricky but we can still do it for sure and change that relationship and Mm. dynamic so yeah validation's my kind of number one thing that I will give advice on <laughs> what's the most common topic for teenage because you will start on teenagers that's, yeah. that's probably an area that yeah. um, is good to, to start with that's brought up by, by either the young person or the parent that's pretty consistent what would be your number one um, I reckon we have a lot of talk about screens mm-hmm. um, and then yeah, that that leads into things like, you know, kids being addicted to their yeah. screens. It leads into online bullying. It leads into kids just feeling like they're missing out because they can see, you know, see everything that's happening. So mm. probably, yeah, kids, but kids wanting to be on screens and parents not wanting them to be on screens as much. So that's something that comes up a lot for a lot all of my kids that I work with um, and kids feeling mum and dad don't understand that that's their that is their way of socially connecting um, and parents wanting as I started saying less of it um, mm. so we didn't grow up with that so no. it's tricky to it is a tricky one to understand but I think we have to try um, and still put limits and boundaries around it and be monitoring I'm I do a lot of monitoring um, but understand that this is their that this is their world and I think I I guess my belief is I have to we have to support our kids to understand how to use it from you know correct right ages not too early um, and understand Mm. you know that it can be a good tool but yeah be careful of being careful of the scary things that can go with it we've Mm. had conversations um, previously with I think even with with Mark LaMessure who was on before and we spoke about balance yeah Um, I guess that and my, from my perspective, was keeping my kids as busy yeah. outside of the yeah. home with sports and yeah. other activities so that it naturally gave them time away from the screens. Yeah, that's and right. I think, you know, when, when you can establish that very early, I think you're in a better place than if you let it go yeah. and it perpetuates into more and more time on the screen. So, yeah, yeah. All right, Esther, let's get back on track too. Um, So one of the reasons that um, Dino loves to refer our clients to Kerry for assessment, um, I suppose, is just because of how well you look at the whole child holistically, try and really comprehensively understand all the different angles of where they're coming from. Um, And I think 
one thing that I've really noticed about your assessment reports is that, yeah, you really get to know the child before you even start to think about any um, criteria, any um, diagnosis boxes and things like that. Imagine you've received a referral for, say, a six-year-old, seven-year-old boy um, with query autism spectrum diagnosis. What are some of the things that you're looking for before you even start to throw around labels or um, check boxes and things yeah. like that? What, what are some of the things that you're really looking for? I guess, yeah, if someone's coming to me fresh that I haven't met them before and they're coming for that, you know, diagnostic assessment, mm -hmm. uh, first of all, wanting to talk to the parents about why. So, mm -hmm. you know, why have you come to this point? Who's suggested it? I, you know, really try and get, has that come from you? Um, has it come from mm -hmm. someone else? How do you feel about it? What are your concerns? What are the concerns of the person who might have raised it? So I'll have a really good chat with them first. Mm -hmm. Often I work with another clinician, so we're doing that in tandem. So either a pediatrician or a speech pathologist. Um, but I really like to spend time um, with the parents in that first instance. Mm. And I, look, I've had some situations where parents are coming for an assessment but don't know what they're there for. Mm. So that's obviously really tricky. And, um, you know, got, you know, the younger uh, clinician kind of got a bit stuck with some of that. So now I'm pretty much, you know, this is what you're here for. How do you, how do you feel? What do you know about it? How do you feel about it? What does your young person know about it? Mm. Um, so a six-year-old might not know that much about it. Mm. Um, and that's fine. You know, I always try and check in. What have you explained to them about why they're here? So I can kind of mirror that um, when I'm with the child. So, so really it's that sort of background first. And mm. then I, I guess I'm always looking for, the reason that the reason they've come to me is that there's usually some sort of challenging behavior somewhere yeah. um, and some concerns. So my, I see my job is to try and really unpack that, not to come up, it's not to come up with a diagnosis, mm. but to really try and find out the why. And that obviously can take a really long time. Mm. And you know, best practice and, and, you know, the way that I feel like I work the best is where I can gather information from as many settings as possible. So mm -hmm. from the parents, but from the school, um, sometimes it's from coaches or tutors or other therapists, you know, that's where we might, I might ring you and mm -hmm. say, Hey, what are you, what are you seeing in sessions? What do you think here? Mm -hmm. Um, I tend to get, I feel like I get really complex kids um, mm. and not, you know, not so straightforward. So it's lots of unpacking and really trying to work out what's at the heart of this and not so much be looking for, I, I guess I don't come at it from a, is this a yes for autism, but what could it be? There's many things it could be um, and trying to get as much information, obviously spending a lot of time with the child. I'll always do a cognitive assessment just because I think that gives me, you know, that can kind of rule in or out an alternative explanation. It might be that there's a learning difficulty or a speech and language delay that hasn't been detected or an intellectual disability that could explain some of the behaviours. So I'll try and do as much, I'll start fairly broad and do as much as possible and then narrow in. And if it's not fitting for autism, then I do, I, I don't like just saying, no, it's not, see you later. Um, mm. I really still try and, you know, help the family work out what else it could be. And sometimes that's a label and sometimes it's not. And mm. I'm, I'm probably not set on a label. I'm probably more on the what's the why. And like I said, sometimes that will fit a diagnostic criteria and other times it doesn't. Um, and then trying to, I just can't help like I just don't want to say well it's this or it's this and then off you go I, I do want to come up with some strategies and recommendations because that's all well and good to say mm. it's autism or it's not what do we do for this young person and the parents who are you know often in distress as well mm. um so 
um, yeah, it's it's a long process, um, and it's not one uh, that you would do to make lots of money. I don't think because no. you know we spend a lot of time, and you know I know that the clinicians that I work with, we take that we take our job really seriously, and um, you know want to try and get it as right as possible. Having said that, we don't always, um, and in those situations, you know we might want to do some further you know where we're not sure go and see the child in in their school or mm. you know in, in a social setting or we might say look at this point in time we don't think they are meeting criteria but but go away and try these things and come back and don't leave it come back and see me again or see someone else let's have another have a chance to have another look if these things you know sort of don't improve mm. so basically you're like a uh, private investigator kind detective of, yeah putting all these pieces together yeah. really interesting um I suppose I've, I was wondering, um, I have two part, a two-part question. Mm-hmm. Um, one, do you think the NDIS has changed anything about this process? Um, and two, do you think that um, there perhaps, um, what, maybe what are some of the, maybe the common mistakes that young health professionals who are working in this assessment area might make? Um, and what's some advice that you could give them to look at the child holistically? Mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So the NDIS is interesting because they do have to tick a box, mm-hmm. unfortunately. So, um, and again, we know that these kids um, need support. That's why they've come. They're not coming because they're having a happy time at school. Um, you know, they're coming because there are some issues. So we want them to get some, some support. So I feel like there's more, there's pressure on parents, there's pressure on on teachers I think and educators and there's then there's pressure on us to make a diagnosis so that can make the diagnostic process tricky and sometimes when we are saying no um, and maybe saying something that we know does you know everyone knows what attracts NDIS funding and what doesn't um, it's it can be pretty emotional as well because mm. you know parents are saying but we really need help um, so I'm yeah, I feel that that's a shame that we're so, we've been kind of forced to be so you know black and so, white. Yeah, black mm. and white, and and also with the severity levels, you know, yeah. you know, we're really under pressure to to be looking at that severity rating as something that attracts or doesn't attract. So even mm. if they do get a diagnosis of autism, they may not get funding if it's on that sort of mm. mi- well milder side, still needing support, mm. but not yeah. So that's uh, that I. I don't like that, mm. um, and I feel that that yeah that makes that that puts pressure on clinicians for sure. Um, so I don't know what we do about that. I, I know that there's lots of people talking about it, and um, yeah, at, at the I end, don't, I don't think the process, to be honest, when it started, um, was a process that was driven with with I guess with the client focused towards helping them regardless of yeah. uh, of the diagnosis. I, I think when the initiative came out it was fantastic because anybody could access it mm. and people with or without a diagnosis, but then mm. the amount of people that accessed it. Yeah. I think one of the one of the things I read was that the budget that was allocated for three years was used in one year. Yeah. And so therefore they had to put some parameters yeah. around. I think my thing has always been communication. If there are changing circumstances in criteria for NDIS, it's really important that we're told in advance so that we can pass that information yeah. on to families as well because a lot of the time it's, you know, you have to be on, <laughs> you have to be connected social, socially through their networks to, to know what the changes are mm. and because sometimes you get 
you just find out that there are these changes yeah. in what's early intervention yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, things like that, which attract a different level of funding. Um, and but sometimes think... we don't understand like that, you know, dear little fellow that you and I both work with who lost funding and yeah. we couldn't, none of us could work out why. So yeah. it is, it's, it's confusing for us. I know it's confusing for families yeah. and... It's a lot of pressure yeah. because they understand the, you know, it's like, I've, I've always likened it to enabling somebody to see what's over the hill, but then saying, you know, you can't go there yeah. after a while. Yeah. <laughs> you think, well, sometimes yeah. if they never knew, yeah. they they wouldn't feel like they're missing out. Yeah. And I, it's, it's heartbreaking sometimes, yeah, but it, is. it certainly is uh, something that I think they're working. I think the NDOS is constantly working to change, yeah. to improve mm accessibility and what they can offer families i don't mm. i think the families are appreciative but they're always most of our families are saying the funding isn't enough yeah they are yeah yeah mm. yeah which but is tricky it mm. is um on on the matter of, of um you know diagnosing and assessing children i, I know I, i'd like to to really make the point about um Kerry and the service that she works for about the amount of time they take because that's yeah. something that I think is really important and there were not only about the time but the depth about going in and watching these children in their environment with mm -hmm. other children with yeah. educators I think that's yeah. you know something that's critically important and I think you know from my perspective and and from our OTFC perspective we're OTs and we only work in, a, in an organisation as OTs, but we do collaborate with, mm. you know, yourself and speeches and other sites. It's yeah. not like we're not multidisciplinary. We, yeah. I think we, we do talk about children and we do attend meetings together and yeah. we, we focus towards um, being really holistic in terms of our understanding of the children that we share um, as clients. And I think that's really important to understand from parents accessing our services is that even though we're standalone we're a standalone practice. Yeah. We still really work closely with other health professionals um, to support our families and, and give them choice, I think, as well. And that's really important. Um, yeah, definitely. So my, my, the thing I've noticed and we've noticed since we've opened um, particularly the uh, O2C Plus site at Mile End, which caters for children um, that are adolescents to adults or young people adolescents to adults, is that the number of young girls, mm. um, adolescent girls and adult women who've accessed our service has significantly increased over the years, particularly from the time that I started as an OT in, in this area. Um, and I'm wondering, have you noticed that there are more, um, I guess, girls being diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder in particular, or is it just something that we're seeing because we are only <laughs> probably only uh, one of the only services that caters for that age group in a physical capacity what what's your perspective yeah, no we're definitely seeing more girls so i was thinking about it this morning and i think i've got about eight reports that i'm working on and maybe three of them are for girls so when i first started about 20 years ago um oh, look we hardly mm. saw any girls for therapy or assessments like hardly any i'm gonna say a couple of year really yeah. and now i think it's not half, but it's much, much closer. What we are seeing, though, and I mean, there's lots of, you know, um, lots of research being done on girls. So I think we're getting a lot better at mm. detecting the differences. And, and the criteria for ASD was written basically on research based around boys. So and we know that girls and boys um, present really differently on the autism spectrum. But what 
we're still seeing, which I'd love to see change, and I've, you know, I really hope that it will, that the girls will come later. So the boys will come when they hit school, yep. often, if not before. Um, but the girls seem to, and one of the things you know that we know about girls is that they're so good at masking and, mm. and mimicking that they seem to be able to make it through primary school, a lot of them. And then the, the transition to middle high school yep. where... Um, you know, it's not so play-based um, and more relationship-based mm. and understanding emotions and social conversation, um, that's when the wheels can fall off. So we'll often see, and, you know, thinking of the girls that I'm working with at the moment, they were diagnosed probably more around that 12, 13, 14, even 16. And I guess I feel that's great and I'm really, really glad that we can we can help them out at that time. But I'd love to see them come earlier so that we can do some of that more proactive work and really set that teenage years are so hard for all all kids, you know, and girls, you know, mm. not on the spectrum that um, if we could get in earlier with our girls who, you know, identify earlier and put that support in place to understand relationships, understand their own emotions, understand mm. the emotions of others. So really work on that theory of mind. I think we would see, you know, have my fingers crossed, we would see that journey through adolescence a little smoother if we could get in earlier. Mm-hmm. But the difficulty is um, they hold it together so well at school that teachers, even if parents do come and say, oh, you know, I think there's something going on there, you know, meltdowns at home are, you know, off the off the scale and, the, and at school they're really holding it together and following the crowd and... Um, you know, not having any outbursts, whereas our boys on yeah. the spectrum often are. Um, yeah, so it's it's knowing what to look for. Um, it's it's parents having the confidence to go. I think something's going on here. Um, you know, I, I would like an assessment, um, and that's where sometimes you know someone like me doing an observation of a of a girl in that setting because we do know what to look for, um, and they're pretty can be pretty subtle. Um, you know cues and clues Mm -hmm. and look again I'm not I'm not a let's just diagnose I would only diagnose if there was a problem or if we thought you know often the girls will start researching it themselves and will come to their parents and say Mm. mum dad I feel really I don't fit in I feel really different I think there's something wrong and I think if we can get to support them before they get to that um, I think that's a really Mm -hmm. positive thing yeah, at the moment, I think um, on one of my days, I pretty much see all girl wow. clients yeah. um, and it's I just love working with this particular group of clients and I think, um, yeah, particularly around that puberty age, mm-hmm. I think it's super important just to have um, someone there to help and, and give some strategies with some things yeah. like um, hygiene and, um, you know, interactions with others. Yeah. So definitely I think a lot of my female clients are quite a lot older, yeah. so it would be yeah. great to kind of see that shift yeah I I think we when obviously doing a lot more of the initial assessments consultations they present with potentially something like depression or an eating disorder um, anxiety or yeah yeah, like anxiety is you know is consistent amongst all children with spectrum disorder The, the girls I've always found not difficult to work with or understand, but more of a case of having to, to unravel a, a bit more yeah. about what's going on yeah. mm. for them. And, and obviously not from the diagnostic perspective, yeah, yeah. but they've already come with that diagnosis, yeah. but understanding then what what's our part in supporting or what could our role be in supporting them. Yeah. And then, you know, seeing how they adapt and how much they really enjoy working with our therapists in this space and, and, not only from a physical perspective, but also from that almost mentoring perspective as well has been 
you know, really surprising to see. And I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing so many more um, young people in this space is because a lot of them feel like then they're, they're not, or they're not, 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 it's not that they're not wanting to access um, psychologists or, or therapists, but more of a case of they still want to do yeah. things. They still want to, they want to be active and want to learn and want to yeah. be engaged with other young people yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, so this yeah. gives them that opportunity. Definitely. But that, and that's the, the thing we've generated more of are things like, you know, groups that involve girls and, yeah. um, you know, initially we had social skills or life skills groups and there was only one girl maybe in a group and yeah. now it's like, well, we could have an all girls group yeah, yeah. now. Yeah, which um, is great. Which is great. And I think that, yeah, that what the group work does that the individual therapy doesn't do is that sense of belonging and that sense of identity of, oh, hang on, you mean there's other girls out there like mm. me? Like I think... Yeah, I think that's so, so, so important. And I, you know, can see here that you could do that. Um, I've, you know, thought quite a lot about getting some of my yeah, girls that are similar age together because they're going through similar things mm. um, and and do feel isolated and alone unless they've met someone else on the um, spectrum at school, which, you know, often there will be. Um, but, yeah, looking for that, I'm not the only one, I think is is just something that, it can be so you know validating and so important that belonging so that's important. right I, I, i've or i don't know how you feel about this kerry or, or Esther, but i've always thought if we can get them through school yeah they will then find their people yeah i, I and, think and, and i say without that too much damage yeah. i always say without yeah. without too much damage you yeah. can get through school yeah. and it's not to say school damages no it's you're in an environment where there are a, a range of people and they're not always sensitive yeah um, and what we do understand about, what I understand about working with children on the autism spectrum is they do have a sense of humour. Yeah. They do feel very deeply yeah. and they do take things to heart and they, they sometimes appear like they're not, um, you know, they're not emotive. But I've, I've known a lot of young people who really go over and over situations that we would we would just pass through yeah. really quickly and they yeah. can't understand why they failed or yeah, why they yeah. perceive that they failed and they're yeah. very they're really hard on themselves and i i find that the most you know the most difficult thing to to work with and trying to get them to understand that that's life yeah. and if we can get you through this you'll be yeah. okay yeah, and you'll yeah. see that you're a superstar yeah and Others will see you're a superstar yeah. as well. And I think that across the spectrum, I mean, we have, I have kids that are, um, are, you know, severely disabled mm. um, with intellectual disability as well. And I just think they're superstars. And yeah, then the yeah. really high functioning kids are amazing and will go on to do amazing things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just getting them through that period it of time, is. isn't it? And high school's, yeah, so right. challenging. I had a girl during the week, not diagnosed, but I'm pretty sure she will be. And she said, I just, I don't fit in here. I don't have any friends. They don't get me. I don't get them. And she's really smart and funny and, you know, had so much going for her. And I, I was trying to say, this is a, I know it feels like it's everything, but it's, it's, it won't, you know, at some point you will find, you know, you're so amazing. You will find your people. And mm. she's going, looking at me going, really? And I know that, you know, for her, it's probably just words, but mm. I do feel like I keep saying it. And then I guess what I try and do when I'm working, you know, longer term with kids is try and help them find, I really do try and help them find their people, um, whether that's, you know, going to a different group, whether that's putting them in contact with someone, whether mm. that's looking at what school can offer. You know, I'm often consulting to schools going, you can't tell me they're the only quirky kid. Come on, let's find kids that might have a, the same interests and put a lunchtime club in. Because yeah. I just feel, yeah, for kids on the spectrum, 
just as much if not more so than our other other adolescents they're looking for that sense of belonging like you said Esther Mm -hmm. and looking for where do I fit and when they feel like nowhere I don't fit anywhere I don't belong that's a really tough place to come back from so I think if we can help them in whatever way we can Mm, um, find that yeah. Um, just on minimising some of those um, anxieties, particularly socially and things like that. Um, Kerry, one of the things you're really well known for is um, working with some really, really anxious children. I was just wondering, um, what are some um, tips or advice that you might be able to give to um, some parents, some therapists, some teachers working with uh, really anxious children? Yeah. Um, so I, 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 I think with anxiety, like with anything I do, like with ASD or specific learning difficulties, I really think getting the kids on board with what's going on, um, is number one. And of course the parents, so, you know, we need parents to understand as well. So I probably start with a lot of psychoeducation and really trying to help the kids, um, and you know, it's developmentally appropriate. Um, so it'll be different for different ages, understand what's happening in their brain. So we talk a lot about the amygdala. We talk a lot about fight, flight, freeze. Um, and we use whatever we can to help them understand how, why that happens, what their triggers are, why it feels, anxiety feels really rotten. Um, and if you don't understand why, um, so really helping them understand the biological basis and and the changes in their body when their, you know, amygdala kind of hits that panic button. Mm. Um, so I'll always start with there and, you know, probably well, I've got a couple of favorite resources that I, I do tell teachers to you because anxiety, like you said, is common. Every, mm. You know, everyone will go through it. So I love Hey Warrior by Karen Young. And I'll, I'll yeah, I think all schools should have it. I think all teachers should have it and use it again in that proactive way um, with helping all kids, um, not just the kids who have got a diagnosed anxiety um, disorder, you know, all kids understand that process um, and what they can do. Um, so I love Hey Warrior. Anything by Karen Young is great. So I would encourage if anyone's got an anxious mm-hmm. child out there, look her up. She's a psychologist, Australian, um, writes a kind a website has got a website called hey sigmund um but it's got lots of great videos lots of she's got three books out i think but um hey warrior um which is about the amygdala and anxiety is excellent and then my other favorite one perhaps for a little bit younger children is um a little youtube clip um by um uh, cosmic kids called the guard dog and the owl Mm -hmm. Absolutely love it, and it's a, just a different sort of way of um, conceptualising the amygdala and, and what's happening in your body. And I love I love that one um, because it looks at the amygdala as a guard dog trying to keep us safe and protect us, and it's our friend. It's not something we should fight against, but sometimes that guard dog makes mistakes and tells us that things are, mm. tells us things are scary when they're really not. And then the wise owl, which is our prefrontal cortex, is the is the part of our brain that can you know calm down and use those strategies and get the deep breathing going um so i'll use honestly with all of my kids whatever age i'll use one or both of those um and then um use that as our basis and their basis for understanding before we then look more in detail at the strategies um so they and a lot of kids a lot of my asd kids love the guard dog because they love dogs and and they'll, (laughs) they'll name the dog and they'll picture it as a particular dog and so it is their friend and they're like okay so it's trying to keep me safe but it's made a mistake in this situation so i need to certainly put a link to those yeah. references as well yeah. for other parents and professionals to access. But yeah. it's such a nice way when you can when you can make it, um, uh, I guess, tangible for that yeah. person, whether it's a parent. Because yeah. as you know, we have parents also who have varying degrees of, um, I guess, of, of 
strengths and weaknesses in mm-hmm. terms of their understanding Definitely. as well. And yeah. often, I don't know what it's like for you, but often we have a young person who's already diagnosed and they'll come and the parent, once they develop rapport, will often say, do you think I could be on the spectrum mm-hmm. too? I'm, I'm starting to think that I'm more and more, yep. you know, in line with some of these things that I'm reading. And, you know, even that process of supporting them to maybe um, follow through with that is yeah. is important because it, I guess for them it provides an understanding about their own children as well Definitely. and a connection as well and also about the relationships and the things that have gone on in their life that they can yeah, process yeah. as well, which I think is important. Yeah. But, um, you know, certainly from our perspective, you know, the, the work that we do with, with children with levels of anxiety covers not only sensory but developmental and medical and it's... Yeah. it's it's, I guess it's something that's understood more um, in across a variety of studies, particularly the educational setting and how yeah. important it is for us to understand that with young people as well yeah. because, you know, it, it doesn't have a barrier to age, that's for sure. No. Um, no. The younger, that, the, younger the, the people are that we're working with, the greater opportunity there is to give them the strategies to cope through their, yeah. through their life. Definitely, and that's where I think... Like it's rare for someone to not be touched by anxiety or have an, have an experience of anxiety. So that's where I really like that proactive approach, you know, reading, you know, making that part of the curriculum. I, I would love to see more emphasis on, you know, teaching about emotions and proactive strategies, really teaching about, you know, what's happening in your brain. And it can be linked to some of the growth mm. mindset work as well mm. on neuroplasticity. Like I would love to see a greater emphasis on that in um, schools because I think if we take that preventative, proactive approach, approach i mean it's not going to stop everything i know but it could it could you know just mm. having that un- little bit of understanding could really um you know really help i think mm. absolutely we're going to wrap things up in just a moment mm-hmm. but i was just wondering um carrie i'm sure you may have referred some of your clients to ot services before yeah um just from your perspective um how do you think ot actually supports a really anxious child like do you how do you how do you see that OT actually supports emotional regulation development yeah Yeah, so I do I mean I would say most of my kids that I work with have also got an OT Um, and like Dino said I think working collaboratively is our the best thing we can do for our young person and their family Um, so you know this just this week I think I was saying have you got your OT on board yet to someone new because they can help you with this so we need to work together for the anxiety I can help you with your cognitive behavior therapy and um, you know some of the the thing you know self-talk and things like that but we need the OT's opinion on some of the sensory things that when we're putting together because often we'll put together a calming plan um, and again what we're trying to you know we're trying to work on the same thing how can we so let's say we use something like the incredible five points scale or the zones of regulation we're trying to catch that feeling before it hits five or it gets to red and so we're working usually together on that and what I think we can add to is different strategies that will complement each other so I yeah I'm a yeah I think we have to work together I I just think working in isolation um will work but I think you know for our really tricky kids with anxiety that's providing them with the best service that we can if Mm. we're saying hey let's let's link together for this plan of you know how we can catch that whether it's anger whether it's anxiety um 
And I think what we, you know, can complement each other as well is working out, well, it might look like anger, but it's probably that fight, anxiety underlying it. So trying to work out the why and then, like I said, putting those different strategies that come from our different training and different disciplines, but are very much complementing each other. Mm. And there's the crossover. And no, there's that crossover point where, you know, like, you know, if it's a family that's seen you and they've already spoken about sensory regulation and yeah. you've given them strategies and which is great because um if you're referring them on it's saying that there's more work yeah. that needs to be done and it's yeah. understanding i think from that perspective even from oc to site there's a point where you need to refer on oh, absolutely. and that's and that's very important to understand and yeah. you know we do we have obviously have a process of supervision and we are ot's who are trained in an amount of um you know, mental health and some of us have a lot more experience than others and some have come from environments like myself where we were um, seen as mental health clinicians, yeah, OT, yeah. speeches and yeah. psych. So yeah. we, you know, we did a lot of the same work, but there's, I always say there's a point where you need to understand and, and notice that this is the time that you discuss with the parents about yeah, yeah. referring I think we need, on. Yeah. <laughs> and that's always good. Not going there maybe right at the start. Yeah, there, yeah. There's certainly an amount that you can support yeah. a family from a, an, a sensory perspective and yeah, certainly yeah. an amount that we can support a family from a say a sight perspective but knowing where when the right time is is, is critical and I think experience gives you that and I think yeah. good support and mentoring gives yeah, therapists that confidence as yeah. well and I think like I'll I know that they'll need some sensory strategies but I don't know enough to know whether is that going to be deep pressure or is that going to be you know something really calming or do we want to hype them up a bit and go on the trampoline I don't know enough to yeah. know that but it, but usually I'll get a sense there's something sensory going on here um, this is as far as I can take you I think you need to go and see yeah. and we'll work together and I think that's what yeah you and I do really well um and I'm sure you know other psychs and OTs do as, as well, well yeah. um but yeah definitely that collaborative approach I think is with the child at the center is our best is it is the, you know often the best way forward isn't it absolutely yes I agree all right well um we like to finish our episodes with just something a little bit fun mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so um this segment is called psychological alphabet right mm-hmm. okay. we'll see how we go basically we're gonna time you Carrie oh, gosh. <laughs> sorry don't mean to put any yeah. um, pressure on you this is not what I need for a Saturday morning <laughs> yes it is <laughs> hope you had your coffee yeah. um, <laughs> um and I've got a bunch of prompts and I was hoping you could respond with a word but the word has to start with a mm-hmm. okay and the tricky part is is that you can't say the same word twice right oh, God. sorry if you can't think it's just the first thing that comes into your mind if mm-hmm. you can't think of anything just say pass and we'll okay. keep going <laughs> how long you, does kerry have there might be a lot of passes that's okay i'm not i tried it on. earlier and i passed for lots <laughs> you passed okay mm-hmm. um dino you're on timing but on you're timer. also on marking so if you can okay. try and remember no, cracking <laughs> uh, we get a score a okay a oh right. here we go are you ready mm-hmm. <laughs> name a disney character oh my goodness i should know this but i don't you can pass it a health service or profession you might refer to. <laughs> okay, maybe I made these too hard. Um, <laughs> An emotion. Anxiety. One on the board. <laughs> Something you'd put on a visual schedule. Um, time to eat an apple. <laughs> no, that's good. I count that. A superhero. <laughs> um, 
low pass. A part of the brain. The amygdala. Yeah, Whoa, well done. Oh my gosh. <laughs> a childhood hobby. Arithmetic. Oh wow, I like that one. Mm. A subject at school. Already said that. Um, I can't say that again. Um, just, ah, yes. Oh my gosh, one of my favourites. <laughs> An executive functioning skill. Uh, attention. A type of therapy. This is, this is mean. It is. Oh my gosh, a type of therapy. I just have nothing. You can pass. It's all right. Yeah. Pass. Oh, that was pretty good. How many did no, you get? No, that was not. No, good. that. No, it was good. It was good. Oh. Four and a half. Oh, what's a Disney character starting with an A? Oh, didn't you know Aladdin? Or oh Aladdin? gosh, of I was thinking they do. if the girls were young enough, you would remember. <laughs> but they're past that that phase, I think. Maybe they're still a bit in a Disney. I don't think they're in Disney. No, phase. they're not now. It's mm. amazing how oh, much Anna. pressure. Is she mm. Disney? Yes. Oh, yes. Frozen. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yes. that's okay. Who it's hard. I, who should I have referred to starting with A? <sighs> Audiologist, Carrie. Oh, yeah. It's funny that we, we both said a lot of the same answers, but passed on a lot of the same mm, ones as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, you think very similarly. Yeah. I think I it's because we're stuck I in a world. Stuck. And we haven't explored enough outside yeah. of that world. That's probably and the it, reason. You know what? It's, are we, aren't we going into week 10? I'm exhausted. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know. Well, term that, four. No, it's term one. Term one. It's a bring, long term. Bring on uh, the school holidays. Yeah. <laughs> it just shows it's important to put yourself in uncomfortable positions sometimes. True. Put yourself out there. Yeah. That's what I said to, yeah, I said yeah, to yeah. Esther. I said, see, we don't know everything. No. Not much at all outside of our field. I really don't. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought you did great. I, that was hard. I mean, out of all of the segments we've done so far, that was the you've copped it. Oh, thanks. Great. <laughs> Oh, well, dear. thank you so much for oh, coming and chatting with us, Carrie. I know just like I learned so much just in the small time that we spent chatting. So, um, and I really look up to basically how you, um, you know, engage with children and seek to understand the child. And I've read a few of your reports and gone, wow. So, um, oh, yeah. Thank you. Thanks no, for having me. Thank you. Nice to, yeah, nice to have this opportunity to, to catch up and, yeah, talk about the, our beautiful kids and, mm. yeah ways we can help out beautiful yeah we hope to keep in touch yep. and have a great saturday thank you thanks go stitch <laughs> well thank you again to our listeners in our next episode we'll be interviewing speech pathologist andrea ferguson from talk speech pathology and we're just so excited for that episode again a little shout out to our most faithful listener little fletch hope you have a great night's sleep mate <laughs> <laughs>